Let's just uh, open in prayer before we get into the uh, study this morning in Revelation 13. Father, we come before you and we want our hearts to adore you, to praise you, to worship you. You alone are God. There is none like you. And as we uh, consider this passage this morning and the attempts of Satan to draw people's hearts away from you, Lord, we want even more so uh, that our hearts be drawn to you in worship and praise and adoration. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in Revelation 13, uh, beginning with verse 11. And I thought this morning, instead of reading the whole passage first, I would just go through verse by verse as we go through the, um, the, the, the passage. And I think it'll all make sense to you. So last week we considered, there are two beasts in chapter 13. The first is the beast out of the sea, which we uh, um, said was the Antichrist. And then today we're going to be looking at the beast out of the earth. Uh, That's the subject of this section of Revelation 13. So we begin in verse 11, and I'm going to even break some of the verses down into parts. And so the first verse is... Verse 11a, then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. And so last week, as I mentioned, we saw a beast coming out of the sea. And just as the beast out of the sea represented a person, the beast out of the land also represents a person. The person, the beast out of the sea represented the Antichrist, the beast out of the earth represents the, uh, what we'll, we'll come to find out later in the book of Revelation, the false prophet. But we're going to peg that name to him today because that's who this is. The sea represents the Gentile nations. And it was mentioned last week that not only uh, does the beast out of the sea represent a person, it represents Um, the revived Roman Empire. And the earth um, refers to the land of Israel and may suggest a Jewish false prophet. Now, there's a lot of discussion and commentaries over whether he's Jewish or Gentile. Honestly, it doesn't matter to us in one sense because we're not going to be there. But this is a clue for those who... Um, we'll be living at the time. And so I want you to, to remember something about the Scripture. Not all, so all Scripture is written for us. Everything in the Bible, whether it was the Old Testament or the New Testament, prophecies or not, all, all Scripture was written for us. But not all Scripture is written to us. Sometimes the Lord specifically writes a portion of Scripture to people of a specific time, and that is true of the book of Revelation, that a lot of the things that we don't understand in the book of Revelation will be very clear to believers living at that time. God will reveal it, and they'll go, oh, of course that's what it means. Those commentaries were useless. (laughs) So the reality is that this is not written to us, but it is definitely written for us. So others say that uh, he may not be Jewish, um, but that he that this coming from the land simply means that he is an earth dweller. 
like those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, their focus is on this earth, the things of the world, and not things eternal, and not things of, of a heavenly perspective. So we'll leave it at that. Let's go to 11b. And he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. So there's another striking difference between the two beasts. The Antichrist, if you remember, is a ferocious beast and is described in, chap- in, in the earlier part of this chapter as a lion, a bear, and leopard with seven heads and ten horns. And he spoke, we read in Daniel, pompous words against the Most High. He will be possessed by Satan who is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But the beast out of the earth, it says that he is like a lamb. Not a ferocious beast, he's like a lamb. And the Antichrist is vocal and blasphemous. He usurps kings and he desires to change times and law, we read in Daniel. He is a murderer, he is a liar. And like Satan who possesses him, he is just like uh, the one who possesses him. But the false prophet appears as a gentle lamb. Now, don't be fooled by his appearance. Because he speaks like a dragon. Now, if you remember back to chapter 12 we were able to identify the dragon. The dragon is uh, spoken of in chapter 12, verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. And you have to ask yourself, what kind of a lamb speaks like a dragon? the kind Jesus warned about in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Paul also warned that Satan appears not dressed in a red suit with, a, uh, with horns and a pitchfork, as everybody likes to draw his caricature. That's not what's, how Satan comes Uh, and presents himself. He comes as an angel of light. He comes presenting what what we would think is good. Um, He did that in the Garden of Eden. And so he seems to be offering, this this, uh, um, false prophet seems to be offering something that is good to the people of the world. But in his heart, because he is also motivated by satanic influence, he uh, seeks to kill and to destroy. Satan, we know from the scripture, is a deceiver, and so is the false prophet who is possessed by a demon spirit. We learn about that later in the book of Revelation. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he says, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder And Paul here is talking about false teachers, those who come and and say that they are delivering the word of God to you. Be aware, Christian. Have your eyes open. 
Not everybody who speaks the name of Christ is a Christian. Not everybody who preaches from the Word is a believer. Be aware. And he says they come and they transform themselves as angels of light, apostles of light. They're like, you know, we're wonderful people. They go, well, he's got such a nice smile. He's got to be okay. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Now, the false prophet also speaks like the devil. Jesus said to the Jewish people of his day, um, what he said to them can also be said of the false prophet. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. It's no wonder that those who are possessed by Satan or are influenced by Satan speak as their father speaks. Satan lied to Eve and deceived her. He cast doubt on God's word. And he said to her, has God indeed said? And he began in her heart and in her mind to question the word of God. Well, did he really say that? Did it really apply to me? Was that word for me? And that's what false teachers and false prophets do today. They question what God has said. They twist what God has said. And so the false prophet, he promotes idolatry, and he's going to use the same strategy as Satan himself used in the last days. He will twist and turn God's word in such a way that he will deceive people and persuade them from God to worship the creature, that is the Antichrist. And as we read in Romans chapter 1, this false prophet is going to do what Romans 1 says, uh, that he will change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man so that the people exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. The lie in Romans chapter 1 is the same lie that we see here in Revelation. And this lie has permeated humanity from the beginning of time, and that is the worship of false gods. It is putting something else in the place of God. It is replacing Jesus with another Christ, the Antichrist. And that is what is happening here in um, Revelation chapter 13. The lie is the promotion of idolatry, a man taking the place of God and his image being worshipped as God. And we are told in Revelation 16 that the prophet, the false prophet and the Antichrist are demon-possessed. They, they, that's what motivates them. It's, it's, from, it's from Satan, and it is satanic in nature, and it is to overthrow um, the worship of God. So I have uh, said here in the heading of this next slide, uh, verse 12a, that the 
false prophet is like the Antichrist's ambassador. And so we read in 12a, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And so this suggests that the false prophet is equal in authority to the Antichrist. Last week, we saw that the Antichrist's authority and power come from Satan. Satan gives the Antichrist authority over every tribe and nation and tongue. He will be the king over a one-world empire, a one-world government, and he is the final authority, and he sets himself up as God to be worshipped as God. The false prophet has the same authority as the Antichrist, but not in political matters, in spiritual matters. And so that's where the division is between these two. Uh, the Antichrist is the chief political power. The false prophet is the chief religious power. But we're going to find out he is not only the chief religious power, he is also the chief economic power, the chief power of all the buying and selling on earth. And so we see that later in this um, passage. So he will be the head, if you will, over a one-world religion. But his authority is a delegated authority. It, it was delegated to him from the Antichrist. The Antichrist being the head and the false prophet doing the bidding of the Antichrist. And uh, since he is demon-possessed, we must assume that the false prophet's authority is also demonic or satanic. When an ambassador goes out into another country, what the ambassador says is what the president says. What the ambassador does is what the president does. He is the president's uh, representation to a foreign country. And that is true here with the uh, false prophet. Uh, he is the representation to the world of the Antichrist and all that he has in mind. And he is, like I said, empowered by satanic forces. He is the head of the religious system in the world at this time. Uh, he is the head of the Antichrist's cult. And verse 12b, and he causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. He is the head of the cult of the Antichrist. And he will deceive people of the world uh, to worship the Antichrist as God. And when all else fails of his persuasion, his gentle, lamb-like persuasion, he's going to become ferocious. Remember, his words are like the dragon. His words are like Satan. So when all else fails, he will force worship of the Antichrist by removing the ability of every human being to buy or sell or conduct any kind of life business. Um, and so unless they worship the Antichrist, they are going to be cut off from society. They are going to be cut off from religion. They are going to be cut off from the, world, the one world economic system. And ultimately, they will have their heads cut off. That's what we read later in Revelation. He promotes Antichrist 
worship. Verse 12c, to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And so we come once again in chapter 13. This is the second time we read about the Antichrist's deadly wound that was healed. And this, as I said last week, is the great deception that takes place uh, in the world at this time. I'm going to read to you, well, let me just say it this way. Um, Did I write this down? Well, let me read it from there. It says, And I saw one of the heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast, that is, the Antichrist. So they worshipped the dragon, that's Satan, who gave authority to the beast, the Antichrist, and they worshipped the beast, the Antichrist. And you see here that the worship of the Antichrist is actually the worship of Satan himself. And so the scripture teaches that when a person worships an idol, they are really worshiping demons. But here, the worship of the Antichrist is the worship, it's satanic worship. So the great deception will be the Antichrist's faked resurrection from the dead. He did not die and rise from the dead. This is faked. The faked death and resurrection of the Antichrist is going to be, however, the main talking point of the false prophet. He will prove, in quotation marks, that the Antichrist is God, that the Antichrist is actually Christ, by emphasizing the quote-unquote resurrection of the Antichrist. Three times... In this chapter, we read about this mortal wound and the healing, or the mortal wound and the resurrection. And uh, three times, it is deception. In verse 13, we read that the the false prophet will be able to uh, perform great signs and even call down fire from heaven. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. One of the greatest spiritual battles in the Old Testament was fought on Mount Carmel. On one side was Elijah the prophet, and on the other side was the uh, prophets of the false god Baal. Elijah stood there on Mount Carmel, the only one in that crowd of people. You had the prophets of Baal, and you had the Jewish people who were there on the mountain as well. And he alone stood against the false uh, god of Baal, the false teaching that the Jews were embracing. And uh, he stood up uh, to them. At stake were the souls of men, women, and children, the Jewish people. And he asked them a question. How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal follow him. Now you can read the whole challenge in 1 Kings chapter 18. But you will remember that uh, Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal to prove to the nation of Israel that Baal was real, that he really was God. And he says, "Let's let's, let's perform a test here to see who really is God. And he said, you build an altar 
I'll build an altar. You put a sacrifice on your altar to Baal, I'll put a sacrifice on the altar to God. No fire, no fire. Call on your God and see if he'll consume the sacrifice by fire. And they jumped up on the altar and they danced around and they did all this kind of nonsense, calling on Baal all day long. And they cried out to him, and they were so desperate in their cries to him to see Baal answer them that they even took knives and cut themselves as human sacrifice. They didn't give up their bodies to death, but they bled over the sacrifice, hoping that that would be enough sacrifice for Baal to answer and to act. And then Elijah, Elijah begins to mock them. Hey, you know, he's God, maybe he's tired. Maybe he's asleep. Call louder. Maybe he'll wake up. Maybe he's gone on vacation. You know, just keep doing it. And they kept, they kept at it all day long. And nothing. Absolutely nothing. And so it was Elijah's turn. At the end of the day, he took four full water pots. And he drenched the sacrifice on the altar with water. And he called for them to take the water pots again, four of them. And he drenched the sacrifice again. And a third time, he took water, the four water pots and he drenched it again so that it was soaking wet and the rocks of the altar were soaking wet. And there was a trench around the altar filled with water. And he called upon the name of God and asked him to consume the offering. And it says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water in the trench. And the Jewish people that day fell on their faces, and they cried out, saying, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Remember that, believers. There is only one God. There will be no other gods before him. And no matter how persuasive or how powerful somebody is who comes, only God is God. The Lord is God. The two prophets um, from Revelation 11 will also have the power to devour their enemies with fire. But Satan gives the false prophet the ability, he, the proof that he is of God by allowing him to call down fire from heaven. And this is like an imitation, a trick uh, of, of uh, the false prophet to imitate what Elijah did. And it's almost as if he is trying to take the place of, the scripture tells us that, Jesus said this, that Elijah must come. Is John the Baptist Elijah? You know, if the people believed, he would be. And it's almost like the false prophet is trying to take the place of Elijah and saying, see, God predicted this in the scripture. Here I am. I can call fire down from heaven. And he does repeatedly. The false prophet will mimic uh, the two witnesses. Jesus did many miracles in his earthly ministry, and he even rose from the dead. And the false prophet will try to imitate these signs and wonders to deceive the world into believing the Antichrist was also raised from the dead. He is the great deceiver. 
in verse 14a, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. Do you remember when Moses stood before Pharaoh? God had called him to stand before Pharaoh and to demand that the children of Israel be released and to to go and worship the Lord. And Moses was given signs by the Lord, and there were plagues that uh, took place uh, each time he went before Pharaoh. But in the first several plagues, Moses had a, had, had a uh, staff in his hand, and he threw it down, and it became a snake. And Janez and Jambres, the two Egyptian magicians um, hired by the Pharaoh, were able to mimic it. And they threw down their staff, and they turned into snakes. But Moses' snake ate up the snakes of, the, of Janus and Jambres. And they were able to repeat a couple of the uh, miracles by tricks, by deceit. They weren't real. It was deceitful. And sometimes I look at the passage and go, why would they do this? They're already suffering. Why would they make it worse? But it was to try to prove that they had just as much power as Moses. And finally, they got to the point where they recognized they could not mimic or imitate what Moses was doing because he was representing God and the power of God to Pharaoh. And they said, ultimately, this is the finger of God. At the very end of the tribulation, we will see that when God usurps the false prophet and the Antichrist, and they are put into the lake of fire, that there is only one God, and that what God has done is the finger of God. What Jesus does is the finger of God. But the false prophet tries to imitate through magic, probably, or something like that, uh, more of the signs it says in the scripture, in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, that um, the Antichrist, the false prophet, will do the work of Satan, and this is how it's described, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, which tells us that what they're doing is not true. People are being deceived by trickery. They're being deceived by Satan, just like our early parents were in the Garden of Eden. Jesus warned that false prophets would rise and deceive many. That warning is not just for the end days. That warning is for us here and now in 2024. This should be a warning for us. Many men claim to be prophets or teachers and greatly influence churches Some even claim to perform supernatural signs. And this should give us great cause, even if we see something that looks like a supernatural event, or you hear about something that seems like a supernatural event. Just because something supernatural or something we can't explain happens does not mean it's from God. Satan has great power, but his signs are meant to deceive, to trick, to fool, and to persuade men to follow him and turn from God. The false prophet, kind of as a summary, uh, will be the most remarkable 
human deceiver that has ever lived. And he will be very successful at it. Next, we, we read about the abomination of desolation in verse 14b. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. This is the third time we read about this wounding and resurrection. The false prophet will successfully deceive the world into believing the lie that the Antichrist is God, that he died, and that he rose again from the dead. And as a result, the world will look on that and fall in love with the Antichrist and worship him, and in doing so, worship Satan. As the head of the Antichrist cult, the false prophet will promote the worship of the Antichrist. And in a world that is literally falling apart at the seams during this time after plague after plague after plague has fallen in judgment upon the earth, um, people will not repent, but they are still going to look for a Savior. And the Savior that is close at hand is the Antichrist. And the false prophet uses that to his advantage to persuade people to follow the, the Antichrist. The earth dwellers will be entirely convinced that the Antichrist is God. And near the middle of the tribulation, the false prophet will command that an image be built, um, an image of the Antichrist. And then as we read elsewhere in Scripture, that image will be set up in the temple of God at the midpoint of the tribulation period. And that's when excuse the way I'm saying it, that's when all hell breaks loose. And that is what happens. Hell in its full fury will just be poured out upon the earth and upon the people of the earth. And we're going to see some of that uh, today. Um, and so in the Bible, that image being set up in the temple and the demand for people to worship the Antichrist as God is called the abomination of desolation. It is first found in Daniel uh, and, and then it's repeated uh, several times in the New Testament. So I want to just stop here for a moment and talk about idolatry, because that's what this is, idolatry. And I want to say and remind you once again that God forbids idolatry. In the, in the Ten Commandments, God says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Idolatry is hatred of God. Idolatry is rampant in the world today. And it's not just among tribal people and animistic people. Many of the homes in this neighborhood have rooms, entire rooms set aside as a sanctuary to worship false gods. They have many, you go to many of the restaurants in town and they have shrines to idols, shrines to their gods. 
Even many so-called Christian churches use statuary, use statues as a means of helping people worship not God, worship the saints, worship Mary, worship anybody else but God. Many churches have Jesus on a cross as an idol. And people, the first time I ever really saw this was when uh, Chris's parents sent us to Mexico on a, they had a timeshare and we, we stayed there for a couple of weeks actually. And we were in um, Puerto Vallarta and we got on a bus and every time the bus reached a certain spot in town, the main street in town, um, we would go past this street and everybody on the bus would go like this. I go, what was that? Now, I'd seen that sign before, obviously. But I thought, why here? Why now? It didn't make any sense to me. And then when we got on the bus to go back, it was at a certain street. Every time we passed it, every time I got on the bus, both ways. And then I realized that right up the hill was the Catholic Church. And there was the, they were crossing themselves as a form of worship. But God forbids it. Believers should not follow the practice of wearing Jesus on a crucifix or hanging something like that in your house. Jesus is not on the cross. He is risen. He has ascended. He is at the right hand of God, and He intercedes for us. He is not dead. He is alive. People have pictures in their homes. I remember as a salesman, when I was selling cabinets for my, for my dad's business, we, I would go into homes and look at you know, people's cabinets and price out replacement and so on. But so often I would see pictures of Jesus. Now, I don't know who took those pictures, and I don't know what artist saw Jesus, but I'm pretty sure there are no actual pictures of Jesus. No one knows what he looked like. But this resemblance of someone who is supposed to be Jesus is hanging in homes all over the country. One of the reasons we didn't put, we took down the cross, actually, or the spire, we took it down because we, don't, we didn't want to glorify a cross, but to worship the one who died on the cross for us and was buried and rose again the third day. We do not worship a cross. It is not part of our of a necessity to have crosses to make me worship God. We worship Him for what He has done for us and the one who loved us and gave Himself for us. But Satan has cleverly blinded the eyes of people. The Old Testament prophets speak out against idolatry. Israel's fall, if you, if you trace the history of the nation of Israel, her fall is linked over and over again to idolatry. God hates all forms of idolatry. The Bible says, Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsman and sets it up in secret. When a person uses idolatry as part of his religious worship, he is not worshiping God. He is worshiping demons. Revelation chapter 9, verse 20 tells us that. But much of the battle that is going on in the book of Revelation is, the, uh, is God's destruction 
of the world's idolatry and the world's idolaters. At the very center of this issue is the false prophet setting up the idol of the Antichrist in the temple of God to be worshipped as God. And then we find in the scripture that the Antichrist is the one who uh, proclaims that he is God. He is one who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. It's a total lie. It's absolute blasphemy. And Satan, however, has always been jealous to have the place of God. He wanted to be like the Most High God. And here in the last days of human history, before the, uh, the um, millennium, Satan is doing everything in his power to get his wish that the world would turn to him and worship him as God. And he is successful, for the most part, with the remaining humans on earth. So this takes place, the setting up of the uh, idol in the temple, midway through the tribulation period. Now in verse 14, we also learn something new about the so-called death and resurrection of the Antichrist. It says he was wounded by the sword and lived. So that tells me something. Many commentators say, oh, this really isn't a physical uh, attempt on a person. It's the, it's the Roman Empire that collapsed and then comes back to life again. No, it's not. The Roman Empire didn't die by being slain by a sword. The Roman Empire is not in the picture here. It's a person. And so the idea here, the mortal wound that is spoken of, is by a sword to a person. And so, as I said, this is the third time in chapter 13 that the event is mentioned, and it shows that his resurrection and the, um, the, the preaching of his resurrection, uh, that message is to draw people to worship the Antichrist as God. And it should show us as believers how much Satan hates when we preach the gospel and speak of Christ's death, his burial, and in particular, his resurrection. Because his resur Jesus' resurrection is the defeat of, of Satan. It's proof of his defeat. In uh, 1 Corinthians 15, you can read all about it. Okay, next, verse 15. Worship the Antichrist or die. It says, He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Well, the stakes are getting higher, aren't they? No longer is it just the acceptable thing to do, to be in awe of the Antichrist and respect him. No longer is it just the expected thing to do, to worship the Antichrist for dying and rising again. Now it is the required thing to do. Everyone must worship the Antichrist and his idol or die. And the false prophet can somehow animate the idol so that the image or statue of the Antichrist breathes and speaks. The false prophet is given power to uh, make the image appear as if it's actually alive. Some have suggested that, oh, this is special effects technology and robotics. I think it's beyond that. I would not limit it to man's technology. 
Satan is at work, and he's desperate to make people worship him. It's a supernatural event with Satan's power, or by Satan's power. It's another deceitful trick, however, but it works to persuade people, and they worship the Antichrist. Finally, the lamb-like qualities of the false prophet seem to disappear when he demands people to worship the, anti the image of the Antichrist under the penalty of death. Do you remember back when King Nebuchadnezzar set up an image of himself and he demanded that everybody in his kingdom bow down and worship his image? And if they didn't bow down, they were to be executed by being thrown into the fiery furnace. Three Jewish lads said, we will not bow down. They said, well, we're going to throw you into the fiery furnace. God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down and worship this image. And they were thrown into the fiery furnace. And God delivered them through the fire and was with them in the fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down. And they are forever cast as um, men of faith, men who trusted God, men who refused to bow down to the king's wishes of idolatry. But the false prophet will cause all who refuse to worship the Antichrist to be executed. And those who refuse will be martyred by something, perhaps the guillotine, but they're, they're going to have their heads cut off. And the Bible tells us that in Revelation 24, 20 verse 4. They are going to be beheaded for not worshiping the Antichrist and the image. And so he carries on with his work. Verse six, verses 16 through 19, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may, be, no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. And so the beast is in charge of worldwide religion, the cult of the Antichrist, but he is also in charge of global commerce. This is the business of religion. And the cult of the Antichrist is the, is the business of religion run by men, as, as Paul says, men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Paul warns again in 1 Timothy, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And that is what is taking place here. They are controlling all worldwide commerce. The false prophet forces mankind to accept the mark of the beast, either on their forehead or on the back of their hand. Um, and without this mark, people are banned from the commercial system of the world. To transact any business, everyone must have the mark of the beast. Well, you would think that people would rise up and say, well, this is an invasion of privacy, of personal rights. You would think they would refuse to be controlled by the government. But the recent events of COVID-19 demonstrate how quickly People jump to accept whatever the government shoved down our throats. 
It also showed how readily people would spy on friends and neighbors and report them to officials. Many businesses refused to service people who were unmasked. Now, the vaccination, don't get me wrong, the vaccination was not the mark of the beast. I said that even during that time. But it clearly demonstrated how quickly people, everyone in the world, pretty much, adopted the new policies. The world changed overnight. We were being controlled by a handful of people. They controlled our travel and our community. They required social distancing and separation from family and friends. People lost their jobs. Others were arrested. Some were imprisoned. Pastors in Canada were thrown into jail because of the stand they took against it. The false prophet will take this to a whole new level, and he will demand that everyone is marked on their hand or their forehead, identifying them as worshipers of the Antichrist. Their identity is not a vax card. Their identity is the mark of the beast, the number on their forehead or on their hand. And people, if people do not comply, they will be cut off from society. There will be even more restrictions than the COVID-19 drama that we went through. Refusing the mark of the beast will eliminate a person from society. It will affect travel, community, social distancing, employment, housing, buying, shopping, selling, acquiring basic necessities, medical, all of life will be affected. And if you don't take it, it's a sentence of death. People will be beheaded for not following the rules. He will offer the world a solution to all its problems, but it will come at a cost of worshiping the Antichrist, and it will come at a cost of being damned for all eternity. Everyone who takes the mark of the beast in the forehead or their hand will end up in the lake of fire. The scripture is very plain about that. The riddle of the number of the beast is 666. It's a number of a man. I'm not going to speculate on what that means. I have no idea, and neither do you. I can't identify the Antichrist because as far as I know, he's not here. But for those who live at this time, they will recognize it. God will make sure that they understand who he is. It is written, this is written for those who will be living at the time of this event. As I mentioned, those who worship the beast and take the mark in Revelation 14 and 16, it tells us that they shall be cast into the lake of fire forever. It is the ultimate place, it is the place of the ultimate doom of Satan, of the beast, and of the, of the false prophet, and of the Antichrist. It is um, the lake of fire, the scripture says, which burns eternally. Believers, I'm going to just end here, and I'm going to quote from 1 Peter chapter 5, 4 and 5. In chapter 4, 7, it says this, but the end of all things is at hand. We are right there. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And then Peter goes on to say in chapter 5, verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He wants to bring believers down. 
He wants to twist the Scripture and turn our hearts away from God any way He can, whether it's through trials or difficulties, problems in life, whatever the event is that, that you're facing in life or ever will face in life, if you're facing something that is not good, it's come from Satan. I will guarantee you that. Because every good and every perfect gift comes from the Father. And there's no shifting shadow with Him. He doesn't do one thing to one and something else to another. He is good and always will be good. So if you're suffering, it's because of Satan. And His purpose is to turn your heart from God. He is a, like a roaring lion seeking who he may, he may devour. Resist him, it says, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We're going to have a closing hymn, David, and uh, the meeting will be over then.